It's that time again. It's ASGCA Insights, the official podcast of the American Society of Golf Course Architects. And now, from our studios in beautiful Brookfield, Wisconsin, it's your host, Mark Whitney. Welcome to ASGCA Insights. I'm Mark Whitney. Joining me today is one of the busiest men in broadcasting, Brian Anderson. A mainstay of the Turner Network family, you've seen Brian and heard his voice on PGA events, Major League Baseball, NBA basketball, and the NCAA tournament, where he is also seen on CBS. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you, Mark. It's a pleasure and an honor, and I can't wait to talk a little golf with you, among other things. And before we go any further, I would be remiss if I didn't mention your day job, the television play-by-play voice for the Milwaukee Brewers. I know how important that is. Yes, it is important, and uh, I can't believe I'm going to be starting my 15th season in Milwaukee, moving uh, to Milwaukee from Texas prior to the 07 season. So, yep, that's my family. My two families right now are Turner Sports, Warner Media, and, of course, the Milwaukee Brewers. So thanks for giving the Brew crew a plug there, Mark. So much to get to, Brian, but for our ASGCA Insights audience, we have to start with golf. Uh, And and for you, uh, from a broadcast standpoint, I know it goes back to your time at Golf Channel. So what was your golf experience leading up to that point when I believe it was 2003 you began working with them? And how was your experience with with the folks at Golf Channel? You know, what's interesting about uh, the Golf Channel job, two couple of things. So uh, I'll put a couple of stakes in the ground for you on that particular job. Number one, that job uh, helped me change the course of my career. And a guy by the name of Tony Tortorisi and Keith Hirschland were instrumental in hiring me there and took a chance on me, those two individuals. Tony is the executive producer and Keith is uh, the producer, the actual uh, live events producer. And, you know, I had not done any golf up to that point. Matter of fact, I had at that point done minor league baseball on the radio and I had done San Antonio Spurs television as a sideline reporter. But I I love golf and I was working in the golf industry. Um, When I started in the business as a minor league radio announcer, you don't make a lot of money doing that, Mark, if you're not familiar. And so I had to have a second means of income. And one of the jobs I had for a number of years was working for Golf Hyatt at the Hyatt Hill Country in San Antonio and uh, working for a great staff there led by Paul Ernest. Um, and that job, that $7 an hour job actually was what tipped the scales to get me the golf channel job, which is crazy to think about. I I didn't perform any duties of broadcasting while working at the pro shop. And I did it every off season for five years in the late nineties. And I loved it, Uh, you know, diving into the service industry. And it taught me a lot about serving customers serving an audience on on the air as a broadcaster i kind of took a lot of those principles across to my broadcasting profession and my career path and so when it came down to the golf channel and i was one of many that auditioned and interviewed for that job as a live tournament host um that experience working in 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 golf hyatt for the for seven dollars an hour was what pushed me over the edge so i always say you never know What's going to help you get the next job or, or make the next step? And um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that job working uh, at, at Golf Hyatt. And I'm still really good friends with most everybody there that I worked with. And then, of course, when I got the Golf Channel job, now I was able to leave minor league baseball 
I was able to make a proper living um, and then really pursue my career as a full-time sports announcer, as opposed to a wannabe sports announcer who needed and wanted jobs to make it full-time, but never really had enough to make it full-time and uh, having to pick up all these other odd jobs. So that was a real break for me to work at Golf Channel. And I covered the nationwide tour back then, now known as the Corn Ferry Tour. But um, I entered that that uh, period of my life when the nationwide tour just launched and um, with a new sponsorship in nationwide insurance, they wanted a more of a mainstream sound and what great players I got to see. I mean, I was there with Zach Johnson and Ryan Palmer and uh, Joe Ogilvie and Bo Van Pelt and Lucas Glover and all these guys who have gone on to win a bunch of tournaments and a bunch of majors, uh, Bubba Watson and Kevin Stadler. And so it was a great experience for me. And I was there four years before I ended up in Milwaukee with the Brewers. And you talk about your time in minor league baseball and, and, and work for golf channel, which is obviously a national network, but, but working the, the, the nationwide events, both of those experiences, it sounds like uh, gave you an opportunity to, to make mistakes, didn't it? It did. And you know, minor league baseball served probably the greatest role in that because when I started, I had very little experience. I, I just graduated from college uh, never really been on the air. I didn't have a journalism background or even a broadcasting background at my university. I went to St. Mary's University in San Antonio, and I went there to play baseball. And I was a scholarship athlete, and I played baseball. So it was, uh, you know, the minor league baseball part was going from an absolute beginner uh, to someone who could pull it off and be a professional announcer. And then you add the golf channel layer. So I started in minor league baseball in 1994. Um, it was a long road to get to the point where I was even an option for a television executive uh, to be a television announcer at golf channel. So, I mean, it'd been almost a decade, basically um, nine years. And so when I got that job, I, I had covered the radio side of things pretty well. And I felt pretty comfortable on radio and I had done a ton of television with the San Antonio Spurs as a sideline reporter, but those are, you know, quick hitters. So I would come on, do a, you know, 30 second to two minute piece, a report, and then I would disappear until my, my number was called again. This job with the golf channel was the one that put me on the air for, you know, three, four, five, sometimes seven hours covering golf. And it was up to me as we navigated through the tournament to have the prep done and be able to quarterback that from my seat um, and follow the lead of the producer and be able to engage my analysts, which was Kurt Byram mostly and Peter Osterhouse and uh, engage, the, engage those that were on course reporters, guys like Michael Breed and Jerry Foltz and Kay Cockrell. And so that really taught me, you know, a great, part of uh, the, the television industry is to a check your ego, which a lot of people don't, but it forced me to, because I, I really didn't have anything to stand on and uh, rely on others. And then B just uh, try to serve others and be not just the audience, but my partners as well and the production truck. And so it was the same crew every week. Uh, we were out there with minimal equipment, making this nationwide tour sing I don't know if you watched in those days, but man, we really had a great product and I'm still really proud of it. And, you know, we were, we were introducing like 
popular music into golf and we were kind of loud and and brash and we were showing a ton of shots i mean we would average twice as many shots as any network that was covering pga tour golf at the time so we were blitzing around the tournament and everybody who in, who entered that tournament you know it was our goal to get that person on the air they had earned that right and so it just, it was kind of like a, a, a clean palette, you know, and we got to do a lot of things and be really creative. And uh, the execs up above left us alone for the most part. We barely drew any ratings, but the sponsorship uh, was extremely happy. And, you know, we spent a lot of time with the sponsors, played golf with them, um, hung out with them. It was just a real cool experience. It's what they talk about when they, when they talk about covering baseball, you know, in the, in in the teens, you know, and maybe in the, in the early 1900s, when you're kind of on the trains and you're building this whole thing, that's what I imagine it was like for those baseball reporters back then. Um, and so it, it's really one of the great memories I have and, and very fortunate that I went through that. And it made me a lot better because four days a week for 30 weeks a year, I was on the air and, uh, you know, you, you had to deliver and, it's just like a player, like a golfer, you, you know, it's not about making cuts. You, you've got to do well enough to survive to the next week and the next year. And that was the approach I took. And, um, just, uh, I, I can't thank those guys enough for the opportunity. And that experience is something I'll never forget. It helped shape the broadcaster that I am right now. And let's talk about the, the unique nature of, of broadcasting golf. And, you know, in a normal year when you are traveling, whether it's with the Brewers or any of the other various assignments that you have, you know, you cover a baseball game and everything is right there in front of you. You broadcast a basketball game, you're sitting at courtside and literally everything is right in front of you. But for any golf broadcast, that's, that's not the case. Uh, what challenges does that provide as I sort of picture your position as sort of an air traffic controller going from one announcer to another one hole to another? Uh, how do you keep all those planes in the air? Well, that's right. And obviously it's a producer's game. It's a producer sport and you, re you rely heavily on your producer and, and really the, the, what makes a great golf broadcast, the announcers are certainly part of it. And, and obviously you think of golf on CBS, you think of Jim Nance, but it's really those behind the scenes that are advancing the next shot. So if you think of it like an assembly line and you know, you almost have to be a split personality on the air as a host, as a, as a, as a tower host or a golf announcer, because what you're saying in the present tense is here's Tiger Woods, second shot at 13. What you're thinking is what's the next player. And as you're saying, here's Tiger Woods, second shot at 13. In my case, I kind of did my own prep and did my own navigation through the scoring system. I would already be uh, searching Sergio Garcia because I know he's coming up next, most likely. And as I'm saying, Tiger Woods, second shot at 13, he's got three birdies. I'm already moving on mentally to the next player that we're going to see. So once I'm finished with Tiger Woods and being in that moment, and now the analyst takes over and we go through the shot, I'm waiting for that moment to put a wrap on it. And so think of it in all these little small templates, right? These, these, and you can be as creative as you want inside the template, but these templates are like, or better said, maybe like the, like the assembly line, the beer bottles, like Laverne and Shirley and the beer bottles are going down and you got to fill them and cap them and put the label on them. Right. And so that's what we're doing. They're all these golfers and these shots we're seeing are beer bottles. 
And if you're late, they're going to crash to the ground. If you're too fast, you're going to disrupt the, the chain of uh, command there, the supply chain. And so that's what it is. And it's hard for people to get their arms around that because when you watch golf, you're in the audience, it feels slow, maybe methodical. You're kind of, it feels very chill and has a meandering pace, funereal pace, um, as Ben Wright would say. But I think when you're inside it, your brain is moving so fast as a host and you're trying to say the right things and be on point and understand the story um, what led you to this particular moment. Sometimes it's no big deal. Sometimes it's a huge deal. Um, but then your brain's always looking ahead to the next thing. So then you do that for hours and hours and hours, and then you sign off and you try to say something poetic and, uh, something that people will remember. And then you're done. And then you go sleep for about 10 hours. <laughs> so that <laughs> that's kind of what it's like. And then you rinse and repeat and you go through it all again. But golf's a blast. It totally engages you. I, I felt like if I, and I still love golf and want to do it again uh, on a more regular basis, but I, I felt like you'll never, you'll never die. If you keep doing golf, your brain in any way will be sharp forever because it's like working the most difficult crossword puzzle every, you know, two and a half minutes for however many days and hours you're on. So it's a really fascinating sport to call. So in the summer of 2020, uh, you happened to be a part of uh, what was probably one of the highest rated golf events of the year. And that was with the, the, the charity match that included uh, Tiger Woods, Phil Mickelson, Tom Brady, and, and Peyton Manning. And Brian, I want to ask you about none of those four men <laughs> because You're, that's a first. I want to know what it's like to share a booth with Charles Barkley. And even better, <laughs> I want to know based on everything that you just said, did Charles show up at the production meetings leading up to the event? Uh, no, he didn't, but <laughs> we had enough conversations. And if you know how Turner sports works, we don't like to engage Charles too much. We, because Charles is like that, that open faucet, you know, it, it's not going to drip. It's just, it's either wide open or it's closed. And if you bring him on in a production meeting and you have all these meetings and you go through graphics and video and storylines He's going to just speak it and it's, he's going to speak it and then it's going to be out of his realm and that's it. You've lost it. So we've all learned a Turner. We don't want to tap the Charles well too early. So we just wait for him to show up and then uh, we kind of brief him a little bit about what's about to happen to Charles's credit. You know, as Trevor Illman and I are sitting there and we've done a lot of golf, obviously um, Charles is looking at us and we're kind of giving him his windows when this is Charles time, you know, and, and he was so respectful of all the players being mic'd up. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot, you know, there's really good conversations happening and he doesn't want to step on that or ruin that. He also knows he can interact with those guys. So he picked his uh, moments beautifully. I'd say the first four or five holes, he was very cautious and passive. And then I think it was hole seven he really busted Tom Brady for playing so poorly. And if you remember, that was kind of the moment of the match when Brady holed out from the fairway yeah. and that set everything on its course at that you, point. And you so don't was, hear shut up Chuck very much. On no, the no. And uh, I think he said more than that and worse than that. Thank <laughs> goodness we had the, uh, the seven second delay, but uh, once that happened, uh, the, the charitable aspect of the match um, and we've done three now, but you know, 
COVID relief and, and adding to the Feeding America and the Wheels Up, Meals Up program, all of a sudden in a single afternoon, we raised $20 million. Um, it was the highest rated cable golf broadcast in the history of television. And it was just a, an amazing thing to be a part of. And, uh, you know, obviously Charles was a huge part of it, but the players did a great job too. And uh, they were fully engaged. And I, I give a lot of credit to Phil Mickelson on this. It's kind of his idea, at least the general thought of, of, of having, you know, this old skins game kind of feel to it. Um, but now there's no telling where this thing can go. We just did one a couple of months ago over Thanksgiving, as you know, and uh, it, it was a, a huge hit as well. And it's got limitless potential. You can bring in celebrities, you can bring in actors, athletes. Um, it, it's, it's such a cool event. As long as you have the tour players there performing, um, it's going to be a hit. Um, it's always going to, I think Turner is, Turner Sports is certainly going to want to lock this up as long as they can. Um, so, and I hope to be a part of it as long as they have it. And it, it leads into a, an area of sports broadcasting that's become more prominent, uh, and that's the in-game interview. Uh, we've seen it with coaches. We've seen it a little bit with players. I know Fox has taken advantage of the all-star game to do some in-game kind of stuff. We've seen it even with spring training baseball a little bit, uh, certainly with golfers at the events that you just talked about here as well. Do you think that's an area that we're going to see more incorporated into the broadcast side? Well, in theory, it sounds like a great idea, but uh, I am actually one of those who does not want to see that. Um, we kicked that around during the baseball playoffs uh, this past season. I covered the American League postseason, and we all decided that that, that wasn't a good thing to do. Um, and the reason it's not is because you don't want to enter into the space of these players now, for exhibitions, all-star games, competitions like the match, of course, that's a lot of fun. And, you know, we had two-way communication with them. We kind of created this, you know, these earpieces that they could, they could hear us, they could interact with us. So that's different. But in, in, a, real, in a real competition uh, with a lot on the line, you know, I don't, as an announcer, want to have to be responsible for interviewing a player, an outfielder, a third baseman, a third base coach, whoever it may be in the middle of a game. Um, because I just don't feel like that's a proper thing to do. Now, players who aren't playing, pitchers who have already left the game, all that's on the table. And we always want more access. But I just I just don't feel like that's our place. And, and we tried to cross that line this year. Um, there was kind of a famous incident with um, a player for the Oakland A's and he's trying to do an interview in the middle of a baseball playoff game. It was a wild card game and he committed an error. And, you know, as an announcer, I didn't do that game, but I, I was putting myself in that position and that would make me feel terrible because once everybody's mic'd up and you're doing it, you, you've got to entertain and you've got to ask questions. So we decided not to do that. And, and I don't, I think more access is coming. Um, but I would like to see the access come more in the post edits and the, and the post production, very similar to what, you know, we saw with NFL films and kind of what helped the NFL become what it is, you know, and make these players superheroes and the job that the Sables did with NFL films. This is not a new concept. 
there was a lot of turnaround time because all of that was on film. Uh, we can do that a lot faster now, and it, it helps us have a chance to edit, put packages together. I am good with players wearing microphones. I do draw the line at players wearing microphones and earpieces where they can hear us and we interview them while they are competing. And uh, is it true, speaking of uh, in-game interviews, that you were the first sideline reporter to ever be dissed during an in-game interview by Greg Popovich? <laughs> well, that's for sure. Uh, can you tell our audience a little bit? There's no doubt. There, and there's so many of them. I can't even begin to, like, everybody, what's the worst one? I mean, I do remember what I remember most. Um, because I was, a, I was a Spurs sideline reporter from 1999, which was the year of the first championship through 2007, through uh, February of 2007. So I was there for four of the five titles in San Antonio. And, and Pop obviously had just taken over, and you go through the whole David Robinson to Tim Duncan thing. And um, I can remember, like, every game, I, was, uh, I would always wait for Pop coming out of the halftime locker room, and I always had to do a report coming into the third quarter. And, you know, this went on for a couple of years, and I was scared to death of Pop. I will say he made me better, though. He made me a lot better because you had to bring it with Pop. I mean, you couldn't throw softball questions out there, and you had to have purpose and have done your research. So he made me a lot better and ended up having a great relationship with him and still do. Um, I respect him about as much as any person alive, to be honest with you. So, yeah, we, we, I was waiting for him at halftime, and Mike Budenholzer, who is now the head coach of the Milwaukee Bucks, was his assistant. And Bud and I were pretty close. Uh, you know, he's a lower level assistant at that point, and I'm just getting on the air. And finally, Pop Pop storms out, and I'm trying to walk with him and get some nuggets of information I can get myself on the air with. And he just blows me up, man. He just stops in the middle. And this is right as we're walking out of the tunnel, right under the basket, in front of all the fans and the other players and the Spurs players. And he is just screaming at me, just why do we have to do this? Is this necessary? Is there anything I can say that's going to matter to anybody? And I'm just like, yes, actually, yes. And he goes, just talk to Bud. Whatever Bud says, you can quote me and we're done with this. <laughs> so that was one of the worst moments of my career. And it turned into be one of the greatest because I never had to really talk to Pop in the middle of a game again. And I was always able to just catch Bud on the way out. Hey, what Pop say? Pop said X, Y, Z. Okay, great. Thanks. And it was a much, much more peaceful existence after that. You know, and what a wonderful story. And it, and it gets back to, you know, you talked about working in the pro shop uh, and, and folding shirts. And, and I know that you're, and you talked about the respect you have for the production side on television right now. You did the production side on television, though. You did all of the behind camera stuff as well, didn't you? I did. I started as a handheld cameraman. I actually started as a utility, what they call it, where you're, uh, you know, you pull cable and you set up lights and kind of do all the grunt work. Uh, that's where I started. And um, I was a handheld cameraman with the Spurs um, uh, starting in 1992 when I was in college. I had an internship and uh, just kept going. And I really enjoyed it. I still enjoy it, uh, the art of it and uh, to be able to I don't know, dive into, you know, a different side. And, you know, I thought that was kind of going to be my career path. If my, it was a bit of a hedge of a bet. If my broadcasting career didn't go, I knew that I wanted to be around sports and I, I was artistic on some level and I enjoyed, you know, framing up shots and, and creating dramatic moments with camera pushes and zooms and, 
in uh, pans. And so that was really important to me. And I ended up doing a bunch of audio and graphics and all kind of stuff. Um, so that was my background. I had a technical background. It really paid off for me as a minor league announcer, because uh, when you do minor league baseball, you're a one man band. You, you set up the equipment, you have to engineer the equipment, the mixer, the headsets. Um, you have to fix it if it's broken. I soldered a headset one year while I did the game, a baseball game in Midland on the phone. I taped the phone upside down to a mic stand and I soldered my headset because it had popped off and my microphone wasn't working. So that's one of my great achievements that nobody knows about that. Uh, I was able to call play by play of a minor league baseball game. And while soldering a headset, fixing the headset, plugging it back in and then using the headset for the rest of the game. So I, I don't know if I win some award for that, but it's only me and Mrs. Anderson signed, right? know about that. <laughs> yeah, one more th uh, serious note before we, before we wrap up here, Brian, when you think of the major sporting events, Super Bowl, world series, uh, Indy 500, uh, the Olympic games, the crowd and their energy make up so much of a broadcast, you know, even locally, you look at, you know, a weeknight baseball game or, really on the local level, a high school football game. These events all have a buzz of their own that are a part of the, of the show. How has it been for you the past 12 months without that natural energy in any of your arenas? Well, it's been different, you know, it's not hard. It's just different. And you got to kind of change what your rhythm is and your, uh, what your, your sensors are, you know, you, instead of laying out for 30 seconds to let the crowd just wash in, uh, you got to jump back in there and finish off the call because there's not that crowd and it, and it feels like it's, it's a little bit lame to be honest. So, uh, the bubble experience in the NBA was fantastic. They did a great job with that. The MLB bubble, uh, was in, in an empty stadium, um, and had that cavernous feel. So, we had to push a little harder to do major league baseball in the postseason. It's been, it's been a very interesting time in our careers. Um, it's again, not, it's not hard. It's just different. And what I've really appreciated the most, number one is the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic. People are dying every day. A lot of people didn't take this thing seriously. And my company and companies did Warner Media and the Milwaukee Brewers, even in the early days of the pandemic, when there was a lot of debate about it. And I'm really thankful for that because my wife has an autoimmune disease. And I, I can only imagine if I was, you know, in a space in a work environment where I was, you know, I wanted to work and needed to work to make a living. And then I would have brought the virus home to my wife and uh, that it could have had fatal consequences and still could. So we're very careful. So that's one thing. Uh, number two, the collaborative effort that everybody I've been involved with, including the players and the coaches in the NBA and Major League Baseball, and they understand our plight. Uh, so it's been really great to, you know, kind of know people on a different level, a lot of Zoom calls and whatnot, but they know that we don't have that access and we're still trying to entertain and tell stories and call play by play. And they've been very receptive to that and they've been helpful in that regard, helping us with no access currently to uh, create some content. And so I've actually, I, I don't want to do it again. I never want to do this the way we're doing it now, calling games from home or in a studio. Um, I hope it all ends soon, but 
uh, I feel like we're all going to be better and smarter and just more understanding as a, as an industry. And I, I think that goes for any line of work, but especially the broadcasting industry, uh, we're going to be better off because it happened. And I think, you know, we're going to be able to, to trim down some of the dead weight and then lean into some of the things that we're hired to do in the first place that maybe we got away from, you know, and that is serving an audience back to what we started talking about, you know, just this being in the service industry and serve that audience in the right way, not overwhelm them with things that we spend a lot of busy time on and we worry about and we fret about on and off the air. So I think it's going to have some rewards uh, for the industry and hopefully we never have to go down this road again. So wear a mask and keep your distance and take care of each other still applies until we get this vaccine rolled out in a significant way. My guest has been Brian Anderson. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure, man. Hope you have a great day and hopefully we'll be back on the green grass, tearing up golf courses all over the state of Wisconsin and all over the country soon. That concludes this episode of ASGCA Insights. I'm Mark Whitney. You can find past episodes of the podcast and more information about golf and golf course architecture at ASGCA.org, or you can download insights from Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and until next time, so long.